please have your Bible open at Philippians chapter 4. We've been making our way through this letter of the Apostle Paul through the summer. Uh, We're drawing now towards its close. Modern media and electronic communications make this less of an issue today than it used to be. Some of us can remember when we never had all of those things. But if you've ever said goodbye to someone in the knowledge that it will be some time before you see them again or have an opportunity to talk to them again, your final words to them will be particularly poignant. And you will feel as if your final words are of great significance. You'll want to say something heartfelt. You'll want to say something meaningful. You'll want to say something purposeful. So it is with Paul as he draws towards the conclusion of his letter. And the first nine verses in chapter 4 consist of his final exhortations and directives towards the church in Philippi. Particular things that he wants them to act upon and put into practice. We're going to just uh, slow down the pace a little as we make our way through these verses Because we need to give them full and proper consideration as to what it is that we can learn from Paul as he speaks to this church in Philippi. Now we read from the last little section of chapter 3 just to remind ourselves primarily of the final two verses of chapter 3. Where there the Apostle Paul reminds these believers of their citizenship which is in heaven. Their true home is heaven, not earth. That is where their heart is. That is where their treasure is to be found. This world and the things of this world, that is not where their affections lie. That's not where their hopes lie. That's not what drives them forward. Heaven does. The things of this world are not the things that they long to be able to take hold of and have in abundance. Now, there are things of this world that we need and there are things of this world which the Lord blesses us with and we thank him for them. But they're not the things that we long for anymore. Their their eternal inheritance, your eternal inheritance is with your God and with your Saviour. And Paul wants to make sure that that is what has their fullest attention. That's where everything in this life is leading, heaven, for all eternity. And so Paul is encouraging them that that should be the uppermost thing in their minds and that should be in their thoughts in everything that they do. We are heaven-bound living for themselves and for worldly pleasures and accomplishment. That's all being left far behind. All eyes are on their heavenly father. They're on their way home. They're looking to him. And his sovereign, gracious and loving rule in their hearts and in their lives, that is what is guiding and directing them as they continue their journey home. Therefore, says Paul in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, 
on account of all of those things, I have a few more things that I need to say. A few more things that you've got to hear from me. Therefore. And as Paul begins to conclude, the first thing we notice is his devotion and his affection for these believers in the opening part of, of verse 1. His devotion and his affection for the church. Their shared citizenship forms the basis of Paul's love for Christ's churches. Each of these believers has been known to God and loved by him since before time began, long before Paul ever knew them. Each of them was a sinner for whom Christ gave himself as a ransom. Most of them are members of that church because God graciously used Paul as his instrument in bringing the message of his gospel to their ears. Now, some, for some of them, he did that directly. Paul was the one who brought the gospel to them. For others, that's happened indirectly. When people like Lydia and the converted jailer who was saved about 10 years ago, they have faithfully passed on the message of the gospel and others have been saved and added to the church. But, but Paul is the one who began it all under God. And they're special to him on account of that. He calls them beloved. They are the object of his deep love and concern. Not because they happen to be nice people. Not because they're on the same wavelength as him in some other areas. But because they are Christ's people. And for no other reason than that. They... They are longed for in Paul's heart. How he craves to be in their company. I wonder if that's how you feel when you wake up on a Sunday morning. Longing to be with God's people. I just can't wait to get there because of who I'm going to be with. Paul longs for them to be able to mutually edify one another, build one another up in their faith, rejoice together in Christ in fellowship. The separation hurts. I long to be with you. Brethren, brothers, sisters in Christ Jesus, this is about family. My joy. There is nothing in the world that gives Paul greater joy than seeing a hell-bound soul saved. And redeemed and restored and healed. There's nothing that gives him greater joy. He has no greater joy in witnessing the lost being found and the hopeless being filled with hope. Thrills his heart. What joy there is in seeing a sinner embrace Christ Jesus as Saviour and Lord. When Paul sees a life transformed by God's saving power and grace, there is nothing in the world that thrills him more than that. And I trust that's the same for each of us. My crown, he calls them. My crown. When you get to heaven, you are going to heaven. Are you? 
you do know you can be certain about this, one way or the other. You do know it's not a matter of hoping that you've done enough to get in, but of trusting in Jesus Christ who is the only door through whom you may get in. When on that basis you get to heaven, when you get to heaven, all the things in this world that you have worked so hard for, all the things in this world that you have been so proud of, all the things in this world that you perhaps have even hoped will gain men's praise, they will all be left behind. You won't take any of them with you. You won't have any of those things to show for what you've done and for how you've lived when it comes to the things of this world. God won't be looking at any of those things. It will be a little bit like walking through security at the airport to be told that you've got all kinds of things in your possession that you cannot take onto the aircraft. There is the bin, madam or sir. That's where they have to go. They cannot be taken through here. And so it is with all the stuff of this world that we amass. You will not take them with you. You'll have to leave it all behind. But Paul, he knows this. He will have with him all those for whom he played a part as God's instrument in bringing them to salvation they'll be with him and they will be his crown in glory what a thought that is all of us are to be instruments of God in bringing people to salvation now you might think me but how I'm no evangelist and I'm certainly not an apostle Paul well perhaps not but you are a witness every day and Christian friend, remember, you are a witness every day. One way or the other, you are a witness. Just what kind of witness you are, well, I'll leave that with you and the Lord, but you are a witness every day. In every place, in every situation, wherever you find yourself, with whom you find yourself, and you can certainly give a defence for the hope that's in you. And you can invite people along to other meetings where they'll hear the gospel. You can give them literature to read. And you can pray without ceasing. In everything, giving thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God will use each of you as his instruments in bringing others to Christ. That they might be your crown of rejoicing. that you will know that on that day when you stand in glory with all the redeemed, there will be those. And God in his wonderful grace and mercy has been pleased to use you in some measure in pointing them to the Saviour and bringing them to Christ. Your own children. The little ones who were just sat here at the front. 
God wants to use each one of you as his instrument in bringing others to know him, that they might be part of your crown of rejoicing in glory when you're with them, with the Saviour forever. What a glorious thought that is. Paul has this great devotion and affection for the people of God and we can learn from him and pray that the Lord would do and bring that same devotion and affection into our hearts for his people for the same reasons that Paul had it. Only one life. It'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So Paul's great devotion and affection for the church he re-emphasizes again at the beginning of chapter 4. And then at the end of verse 1, he gives them a rallying cry. So stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. Now we've had this exhortation already in his letter. We had it in verse 27 of the opening chapter. Remain firm and true. Do not give ground. Stay loyal. Hold your nerve. Maintain a godly and Christ-like integrity. In the Lord, says Paul, because he knows in the Lord they can and in the Lord they will because in the Lord they have everything that they need in order to endure and to continue and to press on as he's urged them to. As a citizen of heaven whose only real concern is the home that you're soon moving to, and the God whom you serve and love. Stand fast. And I think we're supposed to notice, you know, that this call to steadfastness is directed to them as a church. And I think that's important. We need each other in standing fast. We do, you know. We need one another. There's that great proverb, it's verse 17 of Proverbs 27. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Now, when you think about the Apostle Paul, one of the marks of his ministry and one of the marks of him as a believer, one of the marks of his maturity as a Christian was the way that he was able to stand fast even when he was alone and isolated, as he was on a number of occasions. But nevertheless, even though he was able to stand, it's very clear from the things that he says that he found it tough to be on his own. And he realised how much better off he would be if he had others with him. Because this standing alone is something that is easier to do when you're in fellowship with God's people. And I think it's very significant that Paul writes this to a church. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and at verse 9, as he writes to young Pastor Timothy, Paul testifies there of how God has stood with him and strengthened him when others had abandoned him. But the pain of isolation and his need of fellowship and encouragement is very evident in the things that he says. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly. I need you. Demas has forsaken me. Only Luke is with me. Now that's not a slur on Luke. Luke was a very fine believer. 
but probably even Luke feels the same. We need fellowship. We need this encouragement to stand fast with other believers is so much easier. Get Mark, bring him with you. He's useful to me. And bring my books. At my first defense, no one stood with me. And you can hear the ache in Paul's heart as he says it. All forsook me. They abandoned me. They left me alone. Now God upheld him. But how much better it would have been if the other brethren had stood with him. May it not be charged against them, he says. Paul knows and understands what it is to stand fast together as brothers and sisters in Christ because he knows the difference it makes when they don't stand fast together. This is why we need regularly, regularly to spend time together as God's people. We need each other's fellowship. We need each other's encouragement. We need each other's edification. We need each other's prayers. Stand fast together is Paul's great plea to this church. And then the third thing which really stands out, and of course it's in verses 2 and 3, is Paul's plea for peace and unity within the church. Now, of course, this is quite a common theme in Paul's ministry, and it's a real concern on his heart for all Christian churches that they should strive to keep themselves at peace with one another and in unity together as God's people. And we're introduced to these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. The only thing that we know about them is what is said about them in verses 2 and 3. We know nothing else. What a legacy these two women are in danger of leaving behind them. Now, last week we talked about the need for example. Paul says in verse 17, Brethren, follow in joining my example. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now, what kind of pattern are these two ladies being right now in the Philippian church? What an example they've become. Fancy having this as a permanent record in the scripture about you. Whew. But there's none of us that haven't been here. There's none of us that haven't been in the situation that Euodia and Syntyche have found themselves at some point. Now we have no idea what the problem has been between these two ladies Perhaps it's helpful that we don't because it enables us then to take a broader view and realise that all of us can find that we are in this position with another believer in the church and we can note some really helpful and important principles that should always be remembered and always seek to put in place when there is ever any dispute in the church that needs to be resolved. And they always need to be resolved quickly. First of all, what is clear is that there are two people here who've fallen out and neither of them are willing to back down. We don't know how long this has been going on, but clearly it's been in this position for a while. 
I'm imploring them, says Paul. Ladies, be of the same mind. It's been going on for some time. And neither is willing to back down. Neither of them are willing to be the first one to move. Sound familiar? Never been there? I will if she will. But she's got to move first. Now, let's remind us what Paul said earlier. Chapter 2. If there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affliction and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I'm sure even when he was writing those words, he had these two women in mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's, his plea to these ladies is that they will be Christ-like to one another. Whatever the issue is, the fact of being in the Lord means that a certain attitude of heart is both required and expected of the Lord's people. If you truly are in the Lord. And the solution is to allow Christ to overrule in both of you. Never mind about trying to apportion blame to the other Never mind about trying to justify your own position. This is not about you getting one over him or her. You've taken your eyes off Christ when you start to think that way. The issue that you're both in the Lord has become a secondary issue to you when you think that way, when the fact that you are in the Lord should be the most important thing of all. You're not behaving like a true citizen of heaven when you think like, like that. That kind of behavior is foreign to life in God's kingdom. There's something more important than you two. There's something more important than winning the argument. You belong to Christ. And that takes over everything. And that puts everything in a whole different light. You're under Christ's authority. You have the spirit of Christ within you if you're a believer. It's time to humble yourself like Christ did. You're to humble yourself in the same manner that your Lord and Saviour humbled himself. You are both to esteem the other better than yourself. How can I do that? In the Lord. In the Lord you can. In the Lord you must. Because that's your new identity. That's what now shapes and moulds your character. And even if the original issue cannot be resolved. Because maybe the original issue can't be resolved. Maybe they can't come to an agreement on that issue. There are more important things on which they must be agreed. And he puts it, be of the same mind. 
remind yourselves of these bigger truths. Remind yourselves of these higher truths. Remind yourselves of these greater truths of who and what you are in the Lord Jesus Christ and the effect that your dispute is going to have upon the whole church and put that above everything else. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount all the way back in Matthew chapter 5? Do you remember these words of Jesus in Matthew 5 from verse 23? If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, your brother has something against you, well, that's his fault. Well, that's his problem. Well, that's up to him. No. No. Leave your gift there. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you know there's an issue, you are responsible to sort it out. But I didn't start it. You are responsible to go and sort it out. But it was his fault. You are responsible to go and sort it out. These two ladies won't. Please, 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 says Paul, ladies, be of one mind. In the Lord. Let those three words make the difference that they should make. In the Lord. Be reconciled. And of course, Paul also brings in the spirit of what Christ taught in Matthew chapter 18. We won't read it, but you can turn to it yourself sometime. Matthew chapter 18, and Jesus talks about these issues. And Paul invites another brother to step in and arbitrate between these two ladies in order that they might be reconciled. They haven't managed it on their own. They're going to need some help. Uh, Paul calls this person true companion, whoever they were. True companion. It's interesting. In, in the Greek, it's a single word, just one word, suzugos, and it literally means to be co-yoked, which is why the old King James Version doesn't have true companion. It has yoke fellow, which is a bit old-fashioned, but it's actually a much more helpful word, and it's a better translation because it conjures up the most wonderful image, yoke fellow. Oxen were often worked in twos, pulling carts and ploughs. And they would work side by side and across their shoulders would be a wooden yoke which held them together so that they pulled together. They were both pulling the same load but they did it together. And it's written in the Greek like it's a proper name, yoke fellow. Perhaps almost like a, a wonderful Christian nickname that Paul is giving to this individual, whoever they are. My yoke fellow, one who's just like me, one who's laboured alongside me, one who's been bonded to me in gospel work, a yoke fellow. It's a wonderful way of thinking of another Christian. I'm very grateful. I can, I can look around the congregation this morning 
I can see lots of people who truly are and have been yoke fellows in the church. It's great, isn't it? People who are there. People who you know you can trust and rely upon. And pull their weight, pull the weight with you. I can't pull all the weight for this church. We do it together. We're yoked together in Christ. It's a wonderful picture. If the word fellow sounds a little bit masculine, I'm not sure what the feminine equivalent is of fellow, so I'm using the word fellow gender neutral. It's all of you, okay? Those of you who work side by side, shoulder to shoulder, pulling the same weight, pressing on towards the goal, very evidently fellow citizens of heaven. And if you're not yet truly a yoke fellow, now, maybe you've been amongst us for a very long time, but you're not yet truly a yoke fellow. Right alongside, helping to pull the weight and pull the load. Well, let me encourage you. Maybe it's time you were. Maybe that's something you need to talk about more. Well, come and talk to us about it. But be a yoke fellow amongst the people of God. Here's a mature believer that Paul is addressing here. You've been alongside me, Paul says. Get alongside them. Help them to sort it out. Along with all the believers and do it in the Lord. In his name. For his sake. For the sake of his gospel. For the sake of his church. Work at it and sort it. Because it's going to be an issue. It won't go away otherwise. And do we not sense also some surprise and disappointment in Paul when he hears who it is that's been at the centre of this problem? Euodia and Syntyche. They have been faithful yoke fellows in the past. These women who laboured with me in the gospel, says Paul in the middle of verse 3. How we need to take heed to ourselves. There is not a single member in this church who's here this morning who is above being the cause of friction or strife in the church. None of us are above it. Don't ever think, well, I would never be in that position. I would never cause that kind of issue in the church. None of us are above it. These are two ladies who've worked faithfully with Paul in the gospel. And how much bigger an impact such strife can have when it comes through those who've previously been of good character, those who've been at the forefront of the work, those who others have looked up to and esteemed. And yet now, those two threaten to bring division and disunity within the church. So it's an important issue. And Paul urges us here, what are, what are the final things Paul will want to say? What are the final things that he will want the Philippians to have still ringing in their ears as the letter draws to a close? Oh, they may, they may well have forgotten what came in the middle of chapter 2, but they must not forget this. Peace and unity within the life of the church, so important. Dealing swiftly with divisions and arguments and disagreements. And we also note... Paul is not afraid to name names publicly. 
sometimes it comes to that. Sometimes it has to be done. Paul's not being unchristian when he does this, you know. It's reached the point where he must, because the honour of Christ and the cause of the gospel and the unity and purity of the church are more important things to worry about than hurting the feelings of these two ladies. That's why we must not shy away from church discipline when it becomes necessary, if it becomes necessary. You must take note of these three verses. Make sure that your name never replaces that of Euodia or Syntyche. And I must ensure that my name never replaces one of them either. After all, if you're a Christian, your name, like theirs, is written in the book of life. And that's a reputation worth upholding by standing fast together in the Lord. We whose names are written in the book of life. What a position that is to be in. And let me conclude by asking you if you have that assurance this morning. Do you know that your name is written in the book of life? Are you one of those who has come to realise that your life falls so far short of a life that is pleasing to God? Are you one of those who's come to realise that there's a void in your soul that is not designed to be filled or fulfilled by anything that is in this world? Because there is a void in your soul that is designed to be filled by God alone because it's what puts you in fellowship with him and that fellowship has been broken and that's why that void is there and there is nothing in this world that will fill it. Because it cannot. Now it's true, you'll find things which will amuse and entertain. There are things which can put a smile on your face and give you a warm, cosy feeling on the inside. Sure there are. I wouldn't dare to suggest that that's not the case. Because we all know it is the case. But those emotions and the things which produce them, they're so fragile. And so easily and quickly they can be torn away from you. And in the blink of an eye, devastation comes crashing through. But for those whose names are written, for those whose names are written, their feet are set upon a rock. Those are they who are upheld by God's powerful and loving hand, even through the fiercest storm. Your world may have fallen apart but you miraculously haven't because God holds you and keeps you and sustains you. Those whose names are written have been overwhelmed by the extent and severity of their sin against the holy God of heaven but they've been even more overwhelmed by the extent of God's love and mercy which is extended to them in the Lord Jesus Christ in sending him into the world to save sinners. Those whose names are written have turned to him in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins, for the turning away of God's anger against them and to be reconciled with God forever. They are those whose names are written. 
in a book of life. They receive citizenship in his everlasting kingdom where Christ is forever their saviour, their Lord and their king. Is your name written this morning in the book of life?